I'm tempted to apologize that I'm not Stephen Davey. I'm twice as handsome as his, but half as smart. Um, but if you're a visitor here, um, you should know that I am not the pastor, the senior pastor, and you need to come back next week. Lord willing, he will be back here to speak. I would like to ask the ushers to lock the door so that nobody does leave. Um, I'm glad to be able to speak to you. I was given an assignment, and I would like to be faithful to that. Um, and would even like to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 19. There's actually four different passages we want to look at. But look first at Psalm 19. I'm not sure if you have your finger on the pulse of American culture or not. I'm not sure what books you read. But I want to tell you that in the last couple of years, just the last couple of years, there were three books that came out. And all three of them spent considerable amount of time on the New York Times bestseller list. Now, there's always a books on the New York Times bestseller list, but these were three books over the last couple of years that were all written by atheists, and that actually is unusual. Three books by atheists, and perhaps you've heard of these. Let me just tell you the three books and their authors. One of them was written by Richard Dawkins, and it was called The God Delusion. He was talking to you. You believe in God and Christ, and you are deluded. You're foolish and stupid. Same with me. The other book was Sam Harris's book called The End of Faith, and he is pretty sure that there will be an end of faith. We just need to knock out religion and God, and then finally, reason will rule. And the third one, this spent a lot of time on the, on the bestseller list, was Christopher Hitchens, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. At best, you as a Christian are stupid for believing in God and in his son, Jesus Christ. At worst, you're the cause of an awful lot of world problems because of religion. These books tell us a variety of things. We Christians are all weak and stupid. Science has proven that God is not necessary. And history has shown us that religion causes most of life's social problems. About three weeks ago, I was on Holly Springs in the morning coming to church. And the man in front of me... Um, who was driving a Jeep Cherokee or something like that, had several bumper stickers on his car. The one on the left bumper sticker said, Science is my savior. The bumper sticker on the right just said, Evolve. I wanted to honk and say, Gee whiz, yesterday I was a monkey, and you know now I'm a human being, so what, what more do you want from me, guy? On the upper left of his, the back of his car, there was the um, traditional Christian fish symbol, like some of you have on the back of your car, except it had morphed into a rocket with the word science in the middle. Christianity has been on attack for a very, very long time. If you're in Psalm 19, the thing that I want to see here is that all these atheists are sure that the glory of God's creation shows nothing of the sort. But the Bible has a completely different take on the creation, which is something we've sort of been looking at in the book of Job through Pastor David. Read with me in Psalm 19, just the first seven verses. It says this, Psalm 19, number one, the heavens are declaring the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the earth. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. 
its rising is from the one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. That's what we call general revelation, the revelation of God and his glory through the created world. Then the second half of Psalm 19, he begins to talk, for instance, in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. He talks about God's special revelation, that which is revealed about God and his holiness through the written word. In this magnificent psalm, David tells us that the universe is sufficient for understanding the glory of God, and the written law of God is sufficient for understanding the nature and the will of God, and that includes the salvation that God offers. The psalmist can say what the heavens are telling because he has taken time to notice the heavens. David spent a considerable amount of his early life out of doors, of course, as a shepherd, I don't think most Christians understand the significance of that and how important that is. What, what is it that has happened to us Christians and the contemplative life? I don't think it exists anymore. We filled our senses with dozens and dozens of screens. There are screens everywhere. There's two behind me and one in front. There are two people that live at my house. I think we have four computers at my house. What's up with that? And my wife has done the service of making sure that even when we're not using the computer, there's photographs constantly flashing by. Our telephones have screens on them of some sort. The cars now have screens. You can usually watch a movie just by being watching the car in front of you sometimes, right? (laughs) It's almost impossible to find a teenager without some sort of earphones on. Everybody's listening to something and watching some sort of a screen, and we're not paying attention to the sorts of things that David and Job paid attention to, which is the created world that God has, has made for us. I mean, the contemplative life meditates on who God is and what he has said. What's the fruit of that? A beautiful songs about God and a man after God's own heart. That's what it produces. Please turn to Romans 1 now. Romans chapter 1, please. Like the psalmist David, the apostle Paul understood that God reveals himself as real and powerful through the created world. That which God reveals about himself is sufficient to make all men guilty if they reject it and suppress it. This is what Paul says, just jumping right into the middle of chapter 1, or even in the middle of a sentence in verse 19. Read that with me, please. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, and they did know God, make sure you remember that, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Would you with me note five things about this short little passage here? Number one, basic truths about God are things known by humans. I mean, these things that God is talking about in Psalm 19 and Romans 1, they are known. It is real knowledge. Number two, it is God who does the revealing. And of course, that's significant. God says he's the one that does the revealing. God never fails at anything. When he reveals something, then it is done perfect. In other words, when a message is transmitted, it is always received. Now, what happens after the person receives it is a different story, but the message is received. This is the third thing. This general revelation comes by way of the created world. That's what everybody is supposed to look at. That's what we do. 
Fourthly, what is known, what is revealed by the created world are God's attributes, his power and his nature. There's no reason to think that what Paul is talking about here or David was talking about in Psalm 19 is exhaustive knowledge. It's not exhaustive knowledge, but it is enough to show the glory of God. And unfortunately for the disbeliever, it's enough to make him guilty before God. And fifthly, one more thing. Given that Romans is dedicated to explaining the gospel... This knowledge alone is not sufficient to give saving faith. You cannot go to heaven because you know that there is a creator. The gospel is required for that. For a third passage, would you turn to Acts 17? Acts 17. Now, Paul did not just write about the revelation of God in nature, although he surely did, as he did in his epistle to Romans, but it was also a part of his apologetic effort in presenting the gospel. Paul was a defender of the faith, the faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you can see that in Acts 17. It's actually quite instructive for us, even for us today. Acts 17 describes Paul's apologetic efforts to the religious philosophers of the Areopagus of Athens. Now, when Paul writes these things and preaches in the first century, Greece is basically on the downturn. It still exists. Um, It was highly influential. It's still influential in all the Western world today. But um, it was not anything like the glory days a couple centuries before. But still they had all of those temples. They had all that culture, that art, that literature. And they had those areas where there was still a lot of dialogue and debate and philosophizing, like in the Areopagus. So if you're in Acts 17, just starting again in the middle of the story, verse 16, it says this, Now Paul... Excuse me, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, the them as Silas and Timothy, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. Paul goes to the place where they are. He doesn't wait for somebody to come knocking on his door. Paul just says, I know where the unbelievers are, even the intellectuals, and I will go to them. This makes it easy for all of us in the triangle because we're in the middle of three very, very significant universities, and you don't have to go very far, but you do have to go. When he was in the synagogue, he was mostly speaking to Jews. He would open up the Hebrew scriptures because that's what they understood and they knew. He would go to them and would prove from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. He died on the cross. He rose again from the dead. When he comes to Athens, though, he's dealing with Greeks who know nothing about Jesus Christ, know nothing about the Jewish Hebrew scriptures. Keep reading now in verse 22 with me. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. That's a bit of an uh, under-exaggeration there, but for while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Verse 24, I especially want you to note, because it's similar to what he said in Romans 1 and what David said in Psalm 19, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live all, uh, on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, 
though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist and is, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. That's his dialogue about, this is something that we call pre-evangelism. It's Christian apologetics. It is not gospel preaching. It is developed to gain a hearing, and he does that. But then he's got to get to the gospel because there's no salvation without the gospel of Christ. And what he does then, and we read in verse 30 and 31, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Luke, in the purpose of his writing the book of Acts, just summarizes the sermons. Paul said much more than this. Luke just gives us a skeleton outline, but eventually he gets to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we know as you continue to read the chapter, when he mentions the resurrection, it immediately causes problems. Some people are angry. Others want to hear a little bit more about this, but apparently some become believers. It doesn't work for everybody, but some people became believers. Several points are observed here that may be instructive for us. Can I give them to you? Number one, Paul knew his audience. He knew their religion, their philosophy, their architecture, and literature. This helped him keep the dialogue on what was relevant to them and to him. If he knows what they're going to say and when he knows what they're thinking, and of course he knows what he believes, then he can narrow the dialogue down. He can sort of employ an economy of words and keep it on the subject. Now look, you guys, in the triangle here, we're surrounded with almost every conceivable religion or the lack of it. We need to at least be familiar with what's going around. Paul knew the audience, and we need to know a little bit about it too. It doesn't take that long to do some study. If you wait around, they'll come knocking on your door. But we need to go out to them. In fact, we actually need to ask God to give us unbelieving neighbors. You don't need a Christian neighbor. You need a neighbor that needs the gospel. You need God to make that arrangement happen. At least that's my opinion. Number two, he established common ground with his audience by first speaking favorably about them, by quoting one of their poets, and then by employing a kind of logic that would appeal to them, even if they would refuse to accept it. What I want you to see from verse 24 down is that the things that come after verse 24 logically flow from verse 24. That would have been appealing to a Greek thinker, and it got them to listen. And here's probably the most important thing I want to emphasize about what's in this passage. Most importantly, that Paul earns a hearing first before he presents the gospel, which he does, of course, in verse 30 and 31. So the main reason I bring up Acts 17 and Paul in Athens is that he mentions in verse 24 that God made the world and everything in it, just like he did in Romans 1, just like David did in Psalm 19. This fact alone has far-reaching implications. I mean, I mean that God created the world. That has a lot of implications. And you can actually see them. Can I just show you what you read in Acts 17 in that little portion of Scripture? Here's the first thing. Number one, God is not the same as his creation. God is different from his creation. This flies in the face of arguably the most uh, significant religion on planet Earth, which is Hinduism plus Buddhism. That's a huge number of people that believes in pantheism, that God is the world and you are too. Everything is one. What you have to do is meditate 
maybe through yoga or something like that. If you meditate enough, then you'll come to that realization and then you'll reach nirvana and then you'll become the God that you already are. But the Bible says that God is not the same as his creation. If God created it, then he preceded the creation. He was before it. He's outside of it. He's in control of it. So he's not the same thing as the creation. That's one implication. Here's the second one. God is self-existent and cannot be contained by human structures such as a temple. Nor would a God who can create the world out of nothing possibly need anything. That just makes sense. That's, that's just logic. That's elementary logic. God makes absolutely everything. If he can make absolutely everything, especially out of nothing, then you can't possibly give anything to him. And therefore, of course, you can't bribe God or coerce him, which is something that followers of the Roman and Greek gods you know, typically did. God, let me do something for you, and then maybe you'll send me some rain or more children or something like that. Sort of a quid pro quo kind of relationship. But it doesn't work like that when you're dealing with a God who doesn't need anything. Here's the third one. Since God created everyone on earth, they are all equally related to him. When I say that everybody's related to God, I'm talking about how a creature and a creator are related. I'm not talking about the intimate relationship that only a a born-again believer has, but that a creature of God is related to God as the creator. Everyone's equally related to him. Of course, we're all made in the image of God. This rules out racism, and this also means that everyone has the exact same problem, which will need the exact same one solution. If we're all in this together, and anybody's got a problem, then all of us have got a problem, and we do have a problem. Fortunately, God has a solution in Jesus Christ. Here's the fourth thing. If God is powerful enough to create the world out of nothing, then obviously he is sovereign over that creation. He rules and is the ultimate cause of everything. He's the one who gives life. By the way, this is the, this is the one point that really those three atheists I mentioned at the beginning of the hour have the problem with. They really don't have a problem with God creating the world, although they say they do. What they do have a problem with is God being king, boss, sovereign. That's what they have a problem with. And it's what what's typically happens is that when you say, I do not want God to be my king, then you say the stupid thing such as, he doesn't exist. That's what you do. Number five, if people are created by God, yet they need to seek him, which is what Paul said, then there is a problem. Of course, Paul knows that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a solution, and he gets to that at the end of a sermon. So in these three passages, Psalm 19, Romans 1, Acts 17, I see three conclusions we ought to get. Number one, everyone knows that God exists, and the created world gives testament to this. The question then we want to ask the atheist who says, does God exist? He says, I want to know, do you exist? This is what I mean. Are there, are there really atheists? Do they really exist? I can think of two ways they might exist. We're always going to have people that will say or proclaim that God does not exist. Almost always, maybe not always, but almost always, those are people that are just simply mad at God. An inordinate amount of teenagers and college students claim there is no God. Talk to them, and in about 15 minutes, you'll figure out that they're just angry about something. High school and college students, they have no power. When they're mad at their parents, the only thing they can do is that they can try to hurt them by simply saying they, they hate them. That, that's about all they can do. They, got, they have no money. They have no property. They can't do anything, right? Um, when they're mad at, at life, they will say things because they think it's, it's kind of cool or popular to say that God doesn't exist, and it makes them feel better. When an adult does that, it's probably for the same sort of reason. I'm mad at God the way the, my life is going or the way the world is going, and so I, I don't believe that he exists. But I don't believe that they believe that for the most part. 
But might there be some people that really, literally, genuinely don't believe that God exists? I think that's probably true, but I've got to tell you how that happens. Very, very likely, those three authors at the beginning of the hour are real-life atheists. Now, they were not born atheists. You cannot be, according to Psalm 1 and Romans 1, be born an atheist. Everybody is born with that knowledge from the created world, this interior knowledge of God. But if you decide that you will reject that truth, then God gives you the strangest gift that he ever gives. He gives you the disbelief you want to have. And of course, you will be damned to hell forever because of that. That's what he says, Paul says, in the rest of Romans 1, where he gives up on people and gives them over to a reprobate mind. Those people that have turned to that course, they have received revelation and they have deliberately rejected it. They may actually, literally not believe that God exists. But it is hopeless for them. Here's a second conclusion. Because everyone knows God exists and knows something of his glory, power, and nature, all humans are responsible for correctly responding to this revelation. This is what is true of everyone in hell. They rejected the revelation that was given to them. I don't know about the amounts of revelation that everyone in hell has, but I do know they rejected what they did have. The third conclusion, the revelation of God in nature implies many things. So if there is a creator and he has created the order that we see, then certain other truths must follow. Let me get a little bit philosophical, just a little bit scientific, a little bit historical. Of all the philosophical arguments for the existence of God, two of them, the cosmological argument for God's existence and the teleological argument for God's existence, those are the oldest ones. They're at least as old as David or Job. Probably Job, because Job is probably the first book that was written. The cosmological argument from the Greek word cosmos world just simply says, what is the origin of the world? Here is matter. Here is the world. Where did it come from? How did it get here? What's the cause of that? This is just basically paying attention to the law of cause and effect. Every single event or object is an effect. What is its cause? Of course, God is not an object, and God is not an event. So he doesn't need a cause, but everything else does. That's the cosmological argument. The teleological argument, this is from the Greek word telos, which just means end, not end as in last in a row of something, but end as in purpose or design or goal. The teleological argument says, let's look at the world and notice that it has an unnatural order and design to it. That must mean there's a designer. So the attack on God and on the cosmological and teleological arguments for God's existence is at least as old as the Garden of Eden. It's it's, it's old as the world. Consider something about modern history. If you go to the Middle East and look into the sky, you will see the exact same sky without aid of binoculars or telescopes that Job and David had. Those stars, reality, they have shifted just a little bit, but you can't tell that. They're looking at those stars. They were looking at those animals, and they were in awe of God. They saw that, and they were in awe of God. And by the way, you need to be too. About 500 years ago, almost nearly at the same time, the telescope and the microscope were invented. Galileo took the telescope, which was invented. I don't know what people were kind of looking horizontally with it, and he decided he was going to look up into the sky. And when he did that, he saw many more stars and planets. He saw the four largest moons of Jupiter and things like that. 
that expanded that universe for people and brought more awe of God because of that. Anton van Leeuwenhoek took microscopes, made microscopes, and he started to look at everything conceivable that was microscopic and small. That opened up a whole other world that anybody before them had never seen, including Job and David. So Job and David and that world saw the glory of God in what they could see. The telescope and the microscope opened up a more expanded world, and people were even in more in awe of God, which is exactly what they should be. And what was the response to that? The answer is the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment brought about a way of thinking that says we don't really need God. It, the Enlightenment didn't put God away. It didn't say he did not exist, but he said he's unnecessary. With Newtonian physics and things like that, you could basically see that the, the world has been wound up. We'll say that it was wound up like a clock by God, but it basically is running on its own, and everything that we see is a result of just reasonable occurrences and the, the enactment of the laws of physics and stuff like that. So the, the Enlightenment pushed God off to the side. It's interesting, the response to the Enlightenment was, one of the responses was a man named William Paley. This is in the early 1700s. He wrote um, a very, very interesting argument that's now called the watchmaker argument. William Paley defended God and his existence and his creative power by saying, now look, when you look at the world, it is so intricately designed that obviously shows that there is a creator and a designer, and he must care. He said, look, if you're walking through a field and you come across a stone in the field, there's no way anybody's going to stop and say, oh, look, a stone. How unusual for a stone to be in the field. Somebody had to have put the stone here, and it has some sort of meaning. I just don't know what it is. If you saw 100 stones on the field randomly placed, you'd say the exact same thing. But he said, if you came across a watch, a pocket watch in the field, you would surely pick that up and say this about the watch, though you had never seen it made or you don't know who made it, you would say, this is intricately designed. This thing is very, very complex. It couldn't possibly have come about of its own, and it has some sort of function. The function would be timekeeping and that kind of thing. He said, so therefore, that's what the world is like. You see all of its intricacies, and science have just added to all of that. That, that testifies to the glory of God. William Paley's watchmaker argument. What was the response to that? Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin wrote his Origin of Species. In that book, it's a very, very boring book, but it's an important book. Um, He doesn't actually prove anything. But it gave everybody a chance to say, now, since Newton helped us to see, now, Newton didn't mean to do this. He was a believer, or at least he was a Christian in some sense. Since Newton gave us the, the ability to look at the universe out there and say God is not necessary, then Charles Darwin has given us the ability and confidence to say all of the animals and plants that I see are a result of random selection, natural selection, and that gave everybody unbelievable comfort in 1853. In 1953, about almost exactly 100 years later, Watson and Crick discovered the structure of DNA. Now, DNA has been there since God created it, but we only discovered in just the last century, there's to be a, a, some number of, of gray-haired older seniors in our audience who the DNA never appeared in your science textbook. It was absolutely unheard of, but it appears in all of ours today. A DNA, what, what, what is that now, you guys? That's a very, very, very long molecule. It's composed of only four different kinds of little molecules called nucleotides, but the thing about DNA is, is that the order of those little nucleotides, the order is absolutely crucial because the order makes up what makes up the genes that make up all of us. So the difference between a bacteria or an amoeba 
or a worm or a daffodil or an oak tree or a monkey or a man is just the different arrangements of the DNA. At least physically, that's what we're talking about. It's an unbelievable molecule. It's wrapped up really, really tightly coiled in the nucleus of every cell, and you can look at it, and it's called a chromosome when you see it that way. Now, when Watson and Crick discovered that, a lot of people rightly said, this magnifies the glory of God. But of course, what it did for a lot of other people was say, oh, well, this is exactly where evolution occurs. The response to Charles Darwin was the intelligent design movement, and a lot of other people now not even associated with that. The intelligent design movement said, and they vigorously attempted to get the public to understand that DNA is not just complex, but it's actually, and this is very important, it's actually information. DNA is information, how to make another cell or another creature. And the point here is just that we have never in our life ever come across information and said that was random chance. Never. Go back to that field that William Paley was talking about. Supposing I do see 100 stones in the field randomly placed. As I said, we would, we would get nothing out of that. But supposing instead that someone has placed, or forget about the someone has placed, let's just say we see the stones laid out in this field, 100 of them, and it actually writes out the words, this is Don and not Stephen. Anybody and everybody will know that's not a random placement. That's stones set by an intelligent person in a particular pattern to convey information. That's what the intelligent design group is trying to get people to see. What's the response to the intelligent design movement? Those three books that I just told you about at the beginning of the hour. And this brings me back to the book of Job. If I could just ask you to end back there, go to Job 38. I'm not exactly sure what your response or the response of other Christians who are scientists will make to those atheists. But they are all around us, and they are being believed, and they're, being, they're persuading other people. And it's our task to be the salt and the light in the world that gets a hearing for the gospel. Back to Job, though, where God is in the middle and our pastor is in the middle of kind of bringing this to a conclusion. God is telling Job about his created world in great detail. Remember the original question? Why do bad things happen to good people? What makes Job such a famous book is actually the fact that God does not answer that question. He answers it in a completely different way. He says, basically, Job be quiet. He asks Job's questions, Job some questions, and he shows them the created world. And what does that imply? Look at chapter 38, and I'm not going to read anything, but I want you to see something. When you're looking at 38, look at these questions that God asked Job. Look at verse 4. Where were you? Verse 12, have you? Verse 16, have you? 18, have you? 22, have you? Look at verse 31. Can you? 32. Can you? 34. Can you? 35. Can you? 39. Can you? What's the answer to the question for Job? Where were you? The answer is you were not. What's the answer to have you, Job? 
The answer is, you have not. What's the answer to the question, can you? The answer is, you cannot. And then God proceeds to give this detailed look at the created world. And he expects Job to understand that the answer to his question is wrapped up in who God is. And this is very, very important. God answers Job, not by actually answering this question, by saying, what kind of a God would be able to create what you see? He's got to be all-powerful and all-good. And that makes God perfect. You guys, when I, when I tell you, and I want you to meditate on that for many, many weeks to come, when I say God is perfect, I don't mean that he just doesn't make mistakes or whatever he does is really, really creative. I mean it is absolutely perfect. It cannot be any other way. Every event in your life is planned before the world begins, and it's perfect. I don't know why, and you will probably not, never know why, exactly why a bad thing, bad thing happens in your life. But we do know, because we can understand something, both from the written word of God and the created world, the implications are that, that God is absolutely perfect. He cannot do anything different than what he is doing. It's absolutely perfect. And that brings actually great comfort to my heart. Even though I suffer from the pain of some sort of a trial, I understand who it is that is bringing this about and that it is perfect. And that helps me stay the course and stay faithful. And that's basically the answer that Job gets from God. It's a powerful answer. It's an important answer, and we need to think about that. Every day, God is perfect. He cannot do anything differently than what he's doing. It's absolutely the perfect thing that he is doing in your life. Amazing, isn't it? I want to thank you for letting me speak to you. Father, thank you for the time to be with you, to sing your praises, to understand, oh, a little bit better, Lord, about the glories of your creation, but especially to think about the implications of that, Lord. That if you did all this, what does it mean? Oh, God, it means that you are powerful and you are good and purposeful, and therefore you are perfect. We need to remember that truth, Father, when we face the trials of our life, how good you are and how good you are to send Jesus Christ to be the Savior from our sins. We glorify you and thank you, and we're praying these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen. 